This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes, people such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you'll learn from people like you that were working full time but still found the time to create a course grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. Riverside. Hello, friends and extended family. Welcome to this episode of the Hero Academy. This week's episode, we have a very special guest, Jason Mao, uh, law enforcement and military, retired from both, I believe. Yes? Uh, well, I didn't do my full 20 in the military, but I, I did enough. <laughs> Thank you for your service. If it was, uh, if it was even one year, it was, it was you know, appreciated. So... Um, I just want to thank you for coming on to the show, um, you know, right, right from the beginning. And I want to say you are one of those people that have served in many different capacities. We met in Florida at the Great American Speak Off, and um, I didn't consider anyone there really my competition. I considered myself my my biggest competition, but it was a competition and you advanced further than me. I see you have your, um, you have your number back there in the, in the back. Yeah. That was my number for the great right American there. speaker, yeah. 1122. And, uh, you have your golden ticket. I was saying before we started recording, I didn't get my golden ticket. I want to get one in the mail so that I can frame it and, uh, save it. Cause it's part of my story now. Yeah, but, it's, a, it's uh, a big deal. You should make sure you it, get yours. Yeah, it, it's a very big deal. But for those that don't know you, I'd I'd love I'd love to hear your story, and I'd love to hear the longer version of it, like the <laughs> the the three to five minute version story that you didn't get a chance to tell because a lot of the rooms we only have a minute to tell our story, or yeah. uh, you know, if you were lucky, you got the two minute room. Yeah. But um, go ahead. I'll let you take it away. Hi. Uh, well, Super Dave, thanks for this opportunity. Um, it's always a pleasure to speak to a fellow gunfighter. Um, my story is I, I'm a third generation Arizonan. I was born and raised right here in Phoenix. Um, graduated from high school here. Uh, was a, a, went on a, a religious mission for my church. A, I'm a Mormon missionary. Did that when I came home. Uh, I was just one of those guys that just didn't have much direction. I had actually had some college scholarships that I turned down for athletics to go on my mission. 
And back then, they didn't really hold on to your scholarships like they do now. And so, uh, and I was, I was raised dirt poor. I'm the original poor white East Mesa Mormon boy. You know, if you look it up on Wikipedia, you'll see this picture right there. And, <laughs> and so I, I really didn't have much direction or focus in my life. And, and, um, and I really, I was just working as a plumber. I really didn't, you know, didn't want that to be my, the end of my career. I knew I wanted, I knew that there was greatness inside of me and I had, I had a vision of who I wanted to be and where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And I just wanted adventure. I just wanted to, to test myself. I wanted to see who I was and what I was capable of doing. And, and I knew that there was a great big world out there and I wanted to be a part of it somehow. And, and I, I woke up one morning and this pretty lady on CNN said that we had gone to war with Iraq. And I said, this is the first one, <laughs> 91, right? I, the, the, I earned the gray right here. Uh, <laughs> And I said, geez, that looks like a lot of fun. And so I, uh, I went down to the recruiter and, you know, being a strapping young lad, I walked right into the Marine Corps recruiting office and there on the picture on the, on the wall was that guy, you know, he had the camouflage and the K-bar knife and the rope and, you know, he was that guy. And I walked in and it said recon right on the top of it. And I said, I want that guy. <laughs> I walked in there to the, to the, to the sergeant there and I said, sir, I want to be that guy, right? And he goes, if you pass the test, you'll be a Marine. I said, yeah, that's what I want. I want to be, but I want to be that guy. He goes, you'll be a rifleman first. And I said, I get it. I get it. I understand. Can I be that guy right there? He goes, the Marines will decide. I go, okay, so I might not be that guy, but I'm still committed. Thank you. So I walked out, went right next door, walked into the Army recruiter, and there was a picture of a Ranger right there I want to be that guy right there and the guy goes all right sign right there if you pass the test you can do it and i went really and he goes yeah yeah here just sign right there you're good so we started talking and uh and he goes well yeah obviously you want to be that guy but have you thought long term what you want to do with your life right and i'm you know i'm 20 years old 21 years old i don't know anything outside of phoenix and I go, well, I've always thought about being a cop. And he got this great big grin on his face. And he goes, have I got a job for you? <laughs> he goes, how would you like to be a paratrooper and an MP? And I said, I can do both? And he goes, yes, you can. And I just started kind of giggling, you know. <laughs> so he knew he had me. And so I signed up and I, I joined the military and I became a, a, a paratrooper and an MP and I got to do all the kind of fun stuff that that most MPs don't get to do. Um, I, uh, I I worked counter narcotics. I was a bodyguard for a while. I the the last um, the the culmination of my career. I was the army. I was the team sergeant for the army SWAT team. Is the easiest way to describe. It. It's called the SRT, the Special Reactions Team. And I was actually stationed in Hawaii. And my team was responsible for everything in the Hawaiian region, all that stuff. And so. Uh, I did all kinds of fun stuff, and I, and I got to jump out of airplanes and run through the bushes, rappel out of helicopters, sniper training, you know, multiple different types of SWAT levels of training. Um, I worked on JTF-6, which, which is the counter-narcotics task force. I was working with DEA and the U.S. Marshals, and we were rappelling into marijuana fields and all kinds. It was just... That's really cool. You know, I was just, I was just like a pig in mud. It was the best thing ever. Um, then there was, uh, there was some issues politically that were going on, 
and some issues at home. And I decided, okay, well, I've, I, I either have to make this a career. I've been in here almost 10 years. I have to make this a career or I have to get out and start my, start my life. Cause now I have two kids, I'm married. So I, I got the opportunity to become a U.S. Marshal. And so I processed out of the military. I was going to go to Glencoe, Georgia, be a U.S. Marshal. But at that, right as that happened, there were some issues with Congress, and they actually shut the government down for a long period of time. So there's no new hires. But I had just left the military, but I wasn't going to Glencoe to, to be a U.S. Marshal. So I was, I was panicked, and so I just shotgunned my resume out to every law enforcement agency in Arizona. And I got picked up with um, a suburb of Phoenix with a city called Chandler. Um, they were actually the first ones to call back. And so I just, it was a paycheck. And so I took it and, and I became a Chandler police officer. And I was a Chandler cop for about eight years. And I was on their SWAT team. I worked at the academy. Uh, I worked on the, the street crimes task force. Um, you know, I did all the, the cool hula hula stuff. Um, did that for about eight years. And then the government came to me and they said, uh, Mr. Jason, we'd like to hire you as a contractor. We want you to go to Afghanistan and work in, for the State Department in the International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Program. And so I said, well, I get to kill the Taliban. You're going to give me buckets of money and I can, and I can wear civilian clothes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where do I sign? So I headed off to Afghanistan. I worked in Afghanistan for uh, 13 months. I worked at the National Police Academy, training uh, Afghan soldiers how to be police officers for about three months. And that, that was, was probably dangerous because mm -hmm. you don't know like yeah. if there's anybody infiltrating, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every day. I mean, you were strapped everywhere you went. You had guards with you. Um, but that was the intellectual equivalent of herding cats. It's trying to get these guys to even do jumping jacks was was a, a, a chore, you know, and they wanted to kill each other because they're all from different tribes and regions. And we put them all oh, together and give them guns. So it was it was it was tasking. Um, so I, that wasn't working for me. And so I, I, I got a different, in the same area, I got a different job working as a traveling mentor and advisor. And I would go out with the military, the reconstruction teams, the PSYOP teams and stuff like that. And I would live with and work with like the tribal elders and the warlords. And I was their personal advisor and mentor. You know, I'd go into the mountains and, and, the, and everything from, from the Hellman province, which is down south where all the poppies are. Uh, all the whole western region of, of Afghanistan, all the way up to the Turkmenistan border. I ran the Iranian border. All that stuff was my my AO. And I you would probably had a pretty high level of cl of uh, clearance, right? Uh, for what I did, yeah. I mean, there's always more that that you're not supposed to know, and they won't tell you. But right. um, but yeah, I, I ran I ran a crew of of combined military and civilian, and we would go and we would rebuild. Uh, villages. We would train their local militias. I would work with the village elders and the warlords personally, you know, set up comms for them, do all kinds of, you know, just nation building kind of stuff. Um, I did that for a while. Uh, then I got, came home and uh, got hired by the Phoenix Police Department and uh, worked as a Phoenix police officer for many years. Was Does Phoenix pay more? Did Phoenix pay more than Chandler? Uh, their base pay was less, but they offered career enhancement pay. They offered, you know, um, shift differentials and stuff like that. And, and there was more overtime than you could shake a stick at. So I never worked any off duty because I could get 10 hours of OT just by doing the job. You yeah. know, if you're looking for bad guys, you're looking, you're looking to, that's the place to be. If you want to catch bad guys is Phoenix. 
And so, you know, you sometimes, you know, sometimes you'd have to put the blinders on as you're driving home just because you're tired <laughs> and you want to go home. You're like, I don't know, didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I was an FTO. Um, I was in the pipeline for SWAT and also for K-9. Uh, just living the life, man, just catching bad guys. I worked in South Phoenix, which is the the fun area of Phoenix. Okay. And, uh, and that's when I ended up getting wounded. And, uh, and, uh, it was kind of a funny story. I was, uh, tell us uh, that story. It was, that's it was the story. The, that's yeah. the story I heard in Miami. It was the end of my shift and I had just worked a full 10 hour shift. You know, I was done caught all my bad guys and I was headed home. I was pulling into the precinct parking lot and you know, on the computer, there's that magic red button that says you're, you're done for the day. Right. Yep. Just about to push that magic button on the computer when the call comes out, third shift, is chasing a guy. They're just up the street, right? And this is a bad guy. We need to catch this guy. So and I'm literally like a block and a half away. But it's the end of my shift. So I have a choice to make. You know, I can push that magic red button and I can go home. Nobody's going to care. No one's going to say, hey, Jason, why didn't you stay and help catch? Well, I'm done, right? Or I can turn my patrol car around and get involved in that chase. Well, this is what I do. This is what I've done for 20 years. This is who I am. So instead of pushing that magic red button, I turn my patrol car around and get involved in that chase. Well, it turns into a foot foot pursuit. Yeah, was my, somebody's ringing my doorbell. Sorry, my dog's barking. That's all right. And uh, so I, I get in, I get involved. And it turns into a foot chase, and it's just like one of those Keanu Reeves movies, you know, through the dirty dark alleys of South Phoenix. And and as I'm running, I feel this tremendous pain in the back of my leg where my hand, where my, my butt and my hamstring meet. There's this, this pain. And I just, oh, man, if I'm, if I'm going to wake up in the morning with a pulled hamstring muscle, this guy's going to have my handcuffs on him when he goes to prison, right? He's going to know that I'm the one that caught him. And that, that made me want to run after him harder. And the harder I ran, the more it hurt. And the more it hurt, the more I wanted to catch this guy, right? So it got to the point where I was basically just gumbying my leg behind me as I'm just trying to keep him in sight. And trying to call out where we are. Well, a helicopter shows up and there's other officers re- responding and he realizes he's not going to get away. So like any good criminal, he turns around on me in that alley and he squares up on me like a boxer. Well, I'm moving just as fast as I can and I'm in the I'm in the hunt. You know what I'm talking about. I'm in the hunt. Oh, yeah. And oh, so yeah. I hit him like a linebacker and we just go down in that dirt and we just start beating the mustard out of each other, right? And this is a good fight. He tries to get my gun out of the holster. He rips my radio off my, my uniform, my little lapel mic. And, well, he, he'd been in and out of prison most of his adult life. And so he, you know, and in prison, because it's, you know, it's politically incorrect to make them, you know, have a penitent attitude, they, all they have to do is eat food, lift weight, and practice mixed martial arts, right? So he tried to use those mixed martial arts stuff on me. He just didn't realize that's what I do for fun. That was my hobby, <laughs> right? And so it, it, turned into a, it turned into a cage match without a ref. And, and I busted both my hands up on him and stuff. He did, really didn't want to go. He was a th- three-timer, so he knew that if I put the bracelets on him, he was done. He was never going to see the light of day. And so I finally got the handcuffs on him. And I rolled him over in the dirt, and I stood over the top of him like Randy Macho Man Savage, right? I go, where are you going, Billy? I'll tell you, you're going nowhere. And, uh, and that's when it felt like I had just been shot. This amazing pain, this white-hot pain went shooting up my spine and down both my legs, and it... It literally just sucked the air out of my lungs. I couldn't, I couldn't speak and I couldn't form a rational thought because it hurt so bad. And I was just standing there stunned. And my first thought was, did I just tase myself? And so I, I looked down and my taser is still intact. So I said, that's not it. 
And I can't figure out why I can't move my legs and why it hurts so bad. I know I hadn't been shot, but I just, it just wasn't, I just wasn't making any sense. Well, Sarge finally shows up and the other officers get there and boss walks up to him and he goes, Mao, are you okay? And there's tears in my eyes. I'm like, I'm okay, Sarge, but I think I should go to the hospital. So like an idiot, I drive myself to the hospital, right? Well, because as you know, cops and firemen have this love-hate relationship and I'm not getting in that ambulance with those wing nuts. It's not going to happen, right? So I drive myself to the hospital. Long story short, doctor walks in with the, the MRI film and he puts it on that white light board that they have in the, in the emergency, in the, in the hospital rooms and he turns it on. And there's a, my pelvis and my legs go down like this and there's two big white splotches right in the middle of my legs, right up where they meet my butt. And I, I, know, I, I know that there's nothing's been poked into me and I know that's not right. I've seen enough, I've broken my hands enough and I've seen enough broken arms to know that's not right. And I looked at it and I went, oh, doc, what is that? And you know how when doctors get really serious, they kind of yeah. <laughs> change their tone a little bit? He goes, look, what I'm looking at here makes no medical sense. I cannot explain medically what I'm looking at right here with you in this film. But what you have done is you have completely detached both of your hamstring muscles from your pelvis bone. You oh have pulled God. them both completely off the bone. He goes, I don't even know how you walked in here. <laughs> he goes... Either you have an extremely high tolerance for pain or you're too dumb to know it hurts. Either way, you need to lie down. And so I did. And it took me three years to get back up. I'd crippled myself. I'd lost the ability to walk. Right after that happened, my wife divorces me. And then uh, just some horrible, horrible things in rapid succession start happening to me in a very short amount of time. And when I hit rock bottom, I was homeless I was unemployable. I was divorced, crippled, and financially ruined all at the same time. Did you get addicted to the pain pills? I did not take any pain pills because I was lucid enough to know that because there was so much happening to me that if I was numb, I would get up. I would try to get up and that would make things worse because what they had to do was they had to surgically reattach my hamstring muscles and I had to hold completely still for months as scar tissue formed over that reattachment. They had to go in, they can only do one leg at a time and it takes a year to recover from one surgery. And so I had to, I had a year of surgery and then I had, to, I had surgery and I had to wait for a year and then I had wow. surgery on the other one. Then I had to wait for a year and then I could do physical therapy. So I didn't even know if I was ever gonna walk again correctly. But in order for that to, in order for that to, to heal, they put screws in my pelvis bone. They reached down my leg. They pulled up the hamstring. They trimmed off the dead parts. And because they trimmed off the dead parts, my leg was like this. It wasn't straight. And so I had to slowly over time hurt myself till my leg was going straight again through physical therapy. But in order for scar tissue to form over that, and that's all it's holding my legs on right now is scar tissue. I had to hold completely still. And I knew because I was, I was losing my house, I was losing my wife, I was losing my job, I was losing everything that... If I got up to try to fix it, I would make things worse. And so I needed that pain to anchor me to the bed. How and long so ago was this? I was wounded in 2013. 2013. And then another so three years. years another three years after that, 2016. Mm -hmm. And then how long until you started uh, training jujitsu again and, and back to rolling? 
once I was medically retired, I crutched myself into the jiu-jitsu gym because I need, it was more psychological than anything because I was going through physical therapy. But there was that psychological aspect of I was I was an apex predator. You yes. know, I hunted armed men. And yeah. I was now as helpless as a kid. And I felt like a spoon in a drawer full of knives. <laughs> you know, I was I was out of place. I was 50 pounds overweight. My diabetes, I, I con- contracted diabetes because I was the my only thing that I could comfort myself was with food. And and so my whole body just went into shock because of everything that had happened, the emotional effects of the PTSD and because I had no coping mechanisms. I had no way to 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 de-stress. I couldn't go to the gym, I couldn't work out, I, I lost my family, I couldn't even feed myself. Strangers had to bring me food. And so all my coping me- mechanisms were gone, and I would just lay there at night just crying like a baby as 25 years of military and law enforcement and contract work and all that stuff. The dead kids, the burning flesh, you know, all that stuff just came flooding in. And so I was literally burned to the carbon. I had nothing left. And, and, and how did left. you recover it? Like, how did you, how did you pull yourself from these ashes? Like, what were the steps that you took? Well, I know, yeah. uh, I know, I know that you did go to jujitsu and that was an outlet. But before that, how did you recover? Yeah, jiu-jitsu was, was just a, a path, but I had to get up. And, and I was left with, honestly, I was left with two choices. And this is the brutal, honest truth. I was left with two choices. It's victory or death. You know, and both of those, both of those choices made powerful arguments as I laid there, literally in a crockpot of my own filth, stewing for months and months and months at a time. And my, I mean, my Glock is right there. It's literally in, in a bag right there as I'm laying in bed. And there were times when I was holding it in my hand. I'll be completely honest with you. I had no, I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. But again, it goes back to my, my, my ethos, my training, my warrior mentality. You know, I, I'm a problem solver. And, you know, if you call for a SWAT team, there's nobody else coming. <laughs> you you, you got to solve the problem. You know, you call for paratroopers, there's nobody else coming. We have to solve the problem. This is a huge problem. And if I, if the, the biggest reason why I didn't suck start my own pistol is because my mom would probably be the one that found me. Mm. And I had seen that enough as a cop to know what she was going to walk in on. And I couldn't do that to her. And so that grounded me until I was strong enough to make a decision on what victory looked like. And when I decided that it was victory and not, not death, I had to come to uh, an understanding of my relationship with the man in the mirror, the man upstairs, and my willingness to survive. Those three aspects. So the man in the mirror, I made the decision. I'm going to do whatever victory looks like in my mind, in my body, in my soul, in my, in my sphere of influence, I'm going to be okay with. Then I had to get right with the man upstairs. And as a Christian, we believe that there's a benevolent, loving God and that he has a plan for us. If he's a benevolent, loving, all-powerful, immortal, you know, creator of the universe, then his plan is perfect. And if he has a perfect plan, then what I'm going through is part of it. And I don't see it from his perspective. And maybe I need to learn to trust God. 
And so for the first time in, in, since I was born, I had to stop saying that I was a Christian, and I had to start acting like I was a Christian. And I just put all my trust in God. And I said, I was laid, laid there crying. I said, you know what, Heavenly Father, there's nothing I can do about the divorce. I can't even get up. So I'm just going to give it all to you. What I'm going to do is this. And I wrote on a little piece of paper, and I stuck it to the bookshelf next to where I was laying. Because at that time, I could only look up. I could look left and look right and, and work the remote. That's all I could do. And on this little piece of paper, I wrote goals for the day. Wake up, survive, go to bed. And that is all I allowed myself to do. I said, I will wake up and I will, I will do whatever I have to do to live until breakfast. <laughs> and I marked my time by my meals. And that's all I did is I survived till breakfast and then I survived till lunch and then I survived till dinner and then I went to bed. And I said, everything else I'm giving to you. So whenever I started getting overwhelmed with the PTSD or, or the thoughts of being, you know, uh, they're, they're seizing my assets or my wife took the house or all of that stuff, I'd say, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm giving that all to you, God. I'm trusting you that everything will be okay. You know, I'm a Christian. I believe in you. I'm trusting you that everything will work out. Right now, it doesn't make any sense, but I'm trusting that you see the, the path better than I do. And all I'm going to do is I'm going to wake up, survive, and go to bed. And I did that for months and months until I could sit up. And then it was wake up, sit up, survive, and go to bed. And I just started fighting back. And it was unbelievably difficult. And there were honestly, there were days or even weeks when I would just screw it. You know, I try to smother myself with a pillow just so I can stop feeling pain. You know, but at the end of the day, I said, no, I'm a warrior. This is the path that I'm on. I will accept the, I will not use these obstacles as challenges. I will look at them as opportunities. And I'm going to learn something from this. And I'm going to grow from this. And what is it that God wants of me? How can I be a better person? You know, how can I show, how can I show meekness and, and humility in the face of diversity, you know, what is it that he's asking of me? All these questions, I just started trying to, I went into detective mode and I tried to look at it from all the different angles and try to find the, 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 the scenario and the outcome. Um, and then I just, I started healing. It was amazing. I just started to heal and it was a snowball effect. And then I started getting up and eventually I was walking with crutches and then I was walking with a cane and then, and people started seeing this happen to me and, and, and they would go, oh, Mr. Jason, how in the world can you do that? You know, just a divorce, being bankrupt, a, a crippling injury, just that's enough to make a normal person check out. You had all of that at the same time. And I just would say, you know, this is just who I am. And not everybody has lived the way that we have. They don't understand our perspective of life, you know, of service, of of honor, of integrity, of, of what honesty means to guys like us, you know, what natural law means, what training to oppose evil actually means. And you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, the warriors ethos. When did you create that? That's yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I was getting to is that they would say, well, how do you do that? I go, well, it's, it's my, it's my warrior way. It's how I've always loved the term warrior ethos. And I, you know, things like warrior poet and savage servant and all those, they always resonated with me. And I said, well, this is just my warrior ethos. It's, it's how I live my life. And, and they go, well, we don't know that. Can you define that, what that means for you? And so I wrote the warrior ethos. And, and they would say, well, could you come to my house and talk to my sons about this? And, and so I would crutch my way into somebody's house. And 
they'd have, you know, four or five boys there and I would talk to them and just, just be honest with them, you know, about what it means to, to, to do what we do and think the way we think and act the way we act and have integrity, which is something that's not taught anymore. Have, you know, what, what does honesty really mean? You know, why is, why is that my, why is the truth my constant companion? You know, things like that. And they would say, well, that's awesome. Would you come back and talk to our whole church about that? And so I would come back and talk to the whole church. And before you know it, I'm just word of mouth and I'm going all over the country doing motivational speeches for high schools and sports teams and, you know, uh, church, giant church gatherings with, you know, 1,500, 2,000 kids all into the age of 18 there. And it just kind of exploded from there. And and uh, that's how I developed my warrior ethos. And, and now the, the principles are in high schools and they're being taught by families. And it's really just kind of, it's really just a blessing to be a part of it. I'd like to get it on a t-shirt. Do you have it on a t-shirt? On a, uh, <laughs> no, not on a t-shirt, no. But I do have posters and I have little five by seven cards. And, and I've actually wrote some books, my autobiography. And I wrote a, I wrote a historical fiction series and I'm finishing up the actual Warrior Ethos book that covers the, the principles themselves. Okay. That I can publish. That's actually it's in the it's in the editing process right now. So that's when will when do you anticipate that book to be out? Um, summer. Summer. Okay. I'm hoping by summer to have that done. I've got to go back and do some editing, and you know, I I spent the first thirty years kicking in doors and rappelling out of helicopters, and so the business side of all this and being an author and, you know, all that stuff. I, I had no desire. I don't know anything about. And so I'm learning the hard way how to write and, and how to, you know, do all, how to publish and how to, you know, do uh, uh, publicity and things like that. It's just, it never was in my wheelhouse. And so that's my Achilles right now is getting all that out. I'm working with a team to get my second book out myself and it'll be out in February. I don't really have a name yet. I think we're leaning towards coaching heroes, something nice. in that in that realm. Uh, do you have a name for your book? Is it going to be the Warrior Ethos? The Warrior Ethos. Yeah. That's a great. That's a great name because yeah. uh, it says it, it says it all. <laughs> and my editing staff, man, they are so patient with me because my first attempt was like a three hundred and fifty page crime scene <laughs> diagram. <laughs> no, there was no. There was no feeling, there was no emotion, there was no conjecture, there was no opinions. You know, it was, you know, the subject was down, there was blood <laughs> protruding from his face. You know, it's just, the body was, was orientated northward and the right hand was up. You know, that's the way it read. Because that's, that's how I was trained to write, like a, like a crime scene reporter, like I was writing a warrant or something. And so they, you know, they, 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 oh, Mr. Jason, this is adorable. Let's make the water wet. Let's make the grass green. Let's make the wind blow, you know, things like that. And so it's taken me a considerable amount of time to, to produce a product worthy of reading outside of, when I, you know, uh, judge and stuff. I was say, when I first started giving my talk, uh, sometimes I give a talk about, witnessing domestic violence when I was young and sometimes I give a talk about uh, my brother being killed and the homicide detectives coming and telling my mother that my baby brother was killed and uh, at first when I started giving the talk they were like it's very robotic and almost report like and they were like uh, you have to add some emotion to it and I'm like I'm like I don't really feel emotion <laughs> I'm like it's it's like it's almost foreign to me because 
like it was a huge scar and a huge you know hole in my heart but i don't feel like like i'm not i'm never going to start to shed a tear on the stage like i've seen some speakers that do it and i've and i've seen them a few times and i and i always wonder i'm like is that genuine do are they really feeling this right now or is it or is it just an act that they've you know really really honed right i i it, it it's really weird because most of the time it, i'm just putting on i look at it as i'm just t- having a conversation with people but that's how i look at it too i have felt emotion but i don't think in in my in my professional speaking career i've ever openly wept or shed a tear but i have caught myself but just i and i don't even know if why just something at the moment just caught me you know how it is and you kind of get that lump yeah if you ever feel that if you ever feel that lump and you can talk through it you will have them in you know they'll connect heart to heart with you and you'll have them in in your palm If, if you can if you can talk through it um someone said talk about your scars not your wounds you know like not the open not the open wounds you can talk about the scars but not the open wounds yeah and really it just depends on the audience too you know if 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 that's why what they came to hear was the trials and the and the triumphs or did they come to hear the fun stories or and again you got to know your audience too um i tell the basic basically the same story but i cater it to my to my audience because the way i talk to professional athletes you know, a professional football team is going to be different than I talk to some junior high kids. Right, right. They're going to understand things differently than the junior high kids. They will un- those guys will understand overcoming pain and triumph and tragedy and being injured and working through that. Whereas the junior high kids, they'll understand the cool call to duty, fun stories, you know, stuff like that. But I, they still get the same message, the same overall message of overcoming adversity and, and finding that warrior inside of you. And you know, and that being a warrior isn't necessarily about carrying a gun and doing push-ups. It's about having that that can-do spirit, and you know, and 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 how I found a, a nine-year-old boy with terminal cancer, and, and how he's his warrior spirit is far greater than any Navy SEAL I've ever met. So, what is it about that nine-year-old boy that's different than a grown man who intentionally sought violence as an occupation? You know, and it's just that it's that warrior spirit. It's that. That, that can-do spirit, that, that never-die spirit. And it's beautiful when you start seeing it in people and you recognize it for what it is, and, and warriors recognize each other. You know, you can be a single mom and be a warrior. You can be a, you can be a dad that works three jobs because he recognizes that's his responsibility to feed those kids and nobody else's. And, and if it kills him, that he's going to do his job, his duty, which is to be a father and a provider and a husband. And, and that's just something we're lacking generally as a society these days is that attitude of, of that, that, you know, that, that spirit, that true grit that Americans once had. That I'm going to load my entire family up in this wooden wagon and we're going to go that way <laughs> until we hit the mountains and then I'm going to make a house and I'm going to build a society. And I mean, we can't even get kids to get out of the basement now. So it's just. Have you ever heard the quote, uh, hard times make hard men? And hard men make soft times. Soft times, soft times make soft men. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh yeah, yeah. All of those things, all the Jocko Willick and the Jordan Peterson, and you know the Joe Rogan and all that stuff. It just resonates with me. I just absorb that yeah. like a sponge. 
Yeah, well, we're we're in that world. We're in that that jujitsu uh, fighting world. You know, manly manly men. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's funny is, um, I don't eat meat anymore for the last four years, right? So, um, I don't consider myself vegan because I will occasionally have fish. I'm fle- I call myself a flexitarian. I'm fle- I'm flexible. <laughs> Um, and, and, and I just choose not to eat, uh, meat, you know, beef, tur- turkey. I, uh, but if I was starving, you know, I, I could, I could eat, I could eat whatever was in front of me. If I was starving, you know, I, I would survive. Right. Um, I'm not so against eating animals that I wouldn't be able to survive if I needed to. Um, I just choose not to because all of my health it, it was it was for the animals number one but number two it was all of my health numbers got better you know like all of my blood work right all everything just got better like they, they the doctor was telling me that I was gonna have to go on um, cholesterol medicine if I didn't lower the numbers and I was like I'm not going on cholesterol medicine so I was like I'll just cut out the meat and it and it worked and my chance of diabetes went down to zero so I tell everyone, like, hey, it's not soft to be plant-based. It's actually like one of the best things that you can do for your health. And I know um, Joe. Joe's had some doctors on that, like, you know, the guy, the guy, his whole thing is contrarian. It's like you should just eat meat, you know. And then yeah. uh, the the liver king was just exposed. <laughs> what a horse's ass, right? Oh my god, like. I heard a comedian say, if you think someone's on steroids, he's like, that per- that person's probably on steroids. <laughs> he said, how do you know they're on steroids? Because you look at them and you know they're on steroids. Yeah, like he, like he was going to walk around shirtless and normal people were going to go, that isn't normal. That, that's, not, that's not a protein-based diet right there, buddy. No, because the tenants. They, they the tenants. Yeah, they see everybody else walking around that doesn't look like that, that are healthy and active. And no. Yeah, you're in uh, you're in really, really great shape. Now I saw some uh, photos on Instagram. Um, how do you maintain? Oh, so two two part question. Okay. Number one, when you're doing jujitsu and anyone goes for a leg lock, do you do you kind of freak out? <laughs> What's I have learned to work with my limitations. And that's the beauty because it's not just jujitsu that I do. Um, uh, we do, uh, it's a combined arts. So jujitsu is the ground form of the art. We also do Filipino Kali, which yep. is a weapons based. It's stick fighting, knife fighting, stuff like that. And then we do Jeet Kune Do, which is Bruce Lee's art. And what Bruce Lee did is he, all the other arts that he ever studied, he said, well, this works, this works, this works. I'm just going to take what's useful and discard the stuff that's useless. And then I'm going to be formless. I'm not going to hold you to a form. You yes. fight the way that you fight. Take these principles and attributes. Um, a punch is a punch, and I'm not going to hold you to a certain way of doing it because everybody's different. There's 7 billion people right. on the earth. Everybody does it differently. But the principles and the attributes are the same. And so under those three umbrella arts, you've got Muay Thai. You've got uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You've got um, Western boxing. You've got Kung Fu. You've got... Tai Chi, you've got fencing, you've got, I mean, there's all these other arts that fall under those umbrellas. And so it's a, it's a, it's a holistic 
not a, not a holistic. It's a it's a it's a it's whole a comp- system. I know I know what you mean. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. It's a whole system, everything from the pre-contact phase to the to the weapons distance to the, uh, the punching and, and striking, kicking to the grappling to the ground fighting, and then the ability to disengage if necessary. And everything is done live. We put pads on and we beat the crap out of each other with sticks. Um, I took one last night to my thumb right here. I don't know if you can see it, but I got a big bruise right here in my thumb because I took one yesterday, just last night, right to my hand because I didn't get out of the way. <laughs> I didn't get out of the way quick enough, you know. And, and we will stick fight while we do jujitsu, and we will knife fight while we're kicking each other. And just because that's how a fight is, it's so unpredictable. And and so it's a. But yeah, to get back to your to get back to your question, I have limitations. And so I have learned to work around them. I'm I'm an I'm an instructor now, so I need to know how to do leg locks. I need to know how to do figure fours. I need to know how to to, to ankle pick and you know do a double leg and all that kind of stuff. But that's not if I had to fight. There are certain things I wouldn't do. You know, right, so okay. I can teach it. But I what I need to be able to do is just stop if it hurts. How and do you I, keep yourself? The second part of my question is how do you keep yourself uh, so fit? And, and like in, in shape now, are you, are you training weights also, or is it just cal calisthenics? I do. I, I just don't lift heavy. And on the days it hurts, I don't lift, you know, I do something else. I, I got a mountain bike now. I mountain bike everywhere. Um, I do, I do trail running cause I hate running on flat surfaces. It bores me. And so we've got, a I lot love of- Arizona. I love, love, love Arizona for all of the trails yeah. and, and you can find, you can find a mountain trail in like a five minute, 10 minute yeah. drive yeah. anywhere around you yeah. and, and go for just an amazing walk all the time. That's why I love Arizona. Yeah. I'm an hour away from three different mountain ranges. You know, there's one right in the middle of right in downtown Phoenix. There's a mountain range. It's called South mountain. And it's what my precinct was named after. And you can spend months and months and not see the same trail twice. And you'll run across coyotes and javelina and, and snakes and and there's even a mountain lion that lives out there you know it's just it's the it's the coolest thing and then we have the superstition mountains and i got the santan mountains and you know there's prescott and flagstaff and sedona is two hours away from me it's it's awesome it's the only thing we don't have is is uh oceanfront but san diego well, um uh, yeah that's the one thing it's lacking uh we'll have to take a uh, like a, a little hike, a little walk. Uh, next time I'm out there, in, oh, yeah, absolutely. In Arizona, we'll, we'll have to take like a walk and talk. And uh, I, I did that with a uh, with a canine guy. He's a ultra marathon runner. He's like, hey, you want to run? And I'm like, no. How about we just walk and talk? <laughs> and then was, I'm not running 100 miles with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was he was walking so fast that I was out of breath because he's just like he's a go, go, go type of, type of guy. And, um, anyway, I digress. Hey, this has been incredible, man. Your story is amazing. Um, we'll have to catch part two of it and like everything you're doing now, I wanted to dive into that, but we're running out of time. I got five rapid fire questions for you. Um, if anyone is qualified to answer the question of, what is a hero? I, I would think it would be you. So what is your definition of a hero? Somebody that faces adversity and refuses to quit. Getting knocked down is one thing. We all get knocked down. Heroes get back up. Yes, sir. And so I and go, sorry. go ahead. Go ahead. So that's what I would qualify a hero. A hero is a snapshot moment in time. 
You do something heroic every day just by getting out of bed. You know, um, there are some people that literally is the most heroic thing that they could possibly do is try again. And so that tip of the hat to people that get back up. They're my heroes. When stress is at its highest and you're starting to feel low, um, and you've all, you've, you've, you of all people, have, you've actually almost been to your breaking point. How do you save yourself now? You mentioned it before, but nowadays, like, how do you save yourself from that breaking point? Breathe. Just stop and breathe, right? Deep, d- combat the four square breathing. Four, four seconds, deep breath, four seconds, hold it for four seconds, release for four seconds, hold it for four seconds. And I, and I dump oxygen into my body because oxygen is a dopamine. It's a, it's, a, mm. it's, a, it's a type of drug. The more oxygen you get in, the better you'll feel. And I think you're the first person. I think you're the first person that ever gave that that piece of advice. And like you've been in combat, you've been a police officer. That's really, really good advice. And it's one of those things that's so simple to do and so right. It's so critical. Well, the, the body's an amazing mechanism, and when there is stress, it does certain things that you can't, you don't have control of. Um, you have control over how to overcome them, but, the, but it happening, you have no control of. And one of them is that it pulls blood into the core, and you get the audio exclusion, you get the tunnel vision, you get the fight-or-flight syndrome. And the quickest and most effective way to overcome the effects of the adrenaline and the effects of, of that is, is oxygen, is breathing. And that, for me, you know, again, this path is my path, and everybody's welcome to walk it, but this is what worked for me, is breathing give me a chance to breathe and, and you can do that right in the middle of the most chaotic you know anybody that's done jujitsu for more than a week knows that if you can't breathe you can't fight yep, yep. <laughs> it doesn't matter how tough and how bad and how many guns you got if you're not breathing you're not fighting you can't shoot move and communicate if you're not breathing and so everything starts for me with centering myself with that breath number three uh would you ever consider offering coaching on the warrior ethos oh absolutely is that that's what i'm that's what i'm trying to do now is figure out how to do that because that's that's again like i said that's my achilles is i don't know how to do that i know how to talk i know how to shoot guns and jump out of airplanes i but i don't know how to make i can coach too because i have done that i just don't know how to give that to the world make a make a program yeah What's your uh, great number four? What's your greatest ability? What's your strength? What's your power today? <sighs> um, dealing with it. Learned, I learned how to deal with it and how to see the big picture. Um, again, I am, I'm okay. Hey, you know what? If I didn't get the golden ticket, I'm okay, you know? But you got the golden ticket. You didn't make it. Ticket, right? You didn't. You didn't make it to the top three, which, uh, which a lot, a lot. I guess it would be about 147 people didn't make it to the top three. Yeah, but I've been through a lot, and and I have a different perspective on things. You know, I've, I've got shoes on my feet. There's water that comes out of my faucet. The ceiling fan's still spinning. I'm good. You know, I'm good. If I don't have Grant Cardone's millions and billions of dollars. I don't care because I can't take it with me. And I have to stand in front of God and account for what I have done with my life. 
and he would much rather see that widow put the two mites in than the rich nobleman pour the entire coin purse into that coffer, if you recognize the story from the New Testament. I do. I do. Right? And so I look at my life like I'm the, the widow's mite, and, he, and I hope he recognizes my contribution to his kingdom and, and, and the way that he's provided me an opportunity to give. And so if, if the ripple effects of, of what I've done with other people and what I've done for myself are going to echo in eternity. And I just don't know the end of those ripples yet. And I just, and I'm okay. I'm good. I love your talk. I love your talk, man. It's, it's really, really good. Um, I am really glad that I got to meet you. And my final question for you, if you had a comic superpower, what would it be and why? <laughs> I would be a combination of Captain America and, and, and Hulk is what and I Hulk. would be. <laughs> Jason, yeah. thank you so thank you so so much for taking your time out of your day and popping on the Hero Academy. Everyone that's going to hear this is going to appreciate it. You gave a lot of valuable uh, nuggets today, and I just thank want you. to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, you guys can reach me at Jason Facebook, Jason Mao, uh, Instagram, Jason Mao, uh, and uh, thewarchapters.com is where my uh, my books and my my where you can reach me for speaking and stuff. JasonMao.com and the War Chapters. Yeah, so Facebook, Jason Mao, um, and then Instagram, Jason Mao. Thank you, sir. Oh, you got an audience. All right, very cool. <laughs> Special effects. All I right. love it. All right, all right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of their story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith1. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.